0: One, two, three, four.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi there, folks. I'm Amy Wright, and today my guest is Oliver Wood, a Grammy-nominated artist and founding member of the Wood Brothers, who has just released his debut solo album, Always Smilin', on Honey Jar and 30 Tigers. Oliver spent the better part of the 21st century earning an international audience with his sharp songwriting and savvy guitar chops and one-of-a-kind voice that's somehow both raw and smooth at the same time. Oliver says that his new album is first and foremost an album, a celebration, with themes of kindness and hopefulness while also acting as a bridge between his past and present through a wide range of musical collaborations, including Susan Tedeschi, Phil Cook, John Medesky, Carsey Blanton, and others. It's an album about right now, and right now, Oliver Wood is smiling. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. Oliver, welcome to Diddy TV. Thanks for stopping by today.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: Well, we're going to talk about your solo album, Always Smiling, that just came out. So I'm looking forward to talking with you about that. But before we do that, why don't we go back a little ways and see where you came from? Because I know we have a lot of people out there that would love to know about that. You grew okay. up in you grew up in Boulder, Colorado, right?
2: I did. I was actually born in, in Los Angeles. And as was about a 10-year-old, my family moved to Boulder, Colorado. My dad was a biology professor at the university of colorado and he was also and still is a good, really good picker and singer and book musician
1: so was boulder a creative place to grow up
2: in some ways yes you know it's a lot different now it was uh it's super gentrified and exclusive now but um when we lived there when we moved there in the in the mid 70s uh it was still earthier and um and you know, a college town and a college pocket of, of progressive thinking and um so in that regard there was plenty of creative stuff going on. Um, you know, culturally it's a little bit homogenous, like it's not like being in a uh in a more diverse, larger city, like even Denver, you know, which was close to the closest city. Um but you know, pretty progressive thinker. So lots of uh, there's access to pretty much everything.
1: When you said your dad was a guitar player, was he? Was it folk music or what kind of music was your dad playing?
2: Yeah. So so uh, my dad came up um, in, in playing music, being really serious about music in the late '50s and early '60s. Um, he went to Harvard for for his science studies, but he at the, at the same time was really into the folk scene there, which was really. Uh, booming and so and he, he really is a good performer and uh you know learned hundreds of folk songs like a lot of people did in that era but was really good at them and um he had his own radio show and he had a band he, he played with Joan Baez quite a bit and was friends with her and actually appears on her box set like he's in on her early recordings um so definitely very serious about music, even though he he decided not to do that for a living. And and what's cool about it is, I think my brother and I, having become musicians, he he gets some some vicarious uh, enjoyment out of that since he uh, since he never went full pro, you know.
1: So have you ever played or recorded with your dad? You you guys?
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's sad that we waited so long. And my dad's still around; he's in his eighties, but. Um, but the last few years, like when we go through Colorado, he usually gets up and plays with us. And, um, and we've had him in Nashville here, and we've gone in the studio together as well. So, so yeah, we have some some good times for, for posterity that have been recorded. Or, you know, it, was, it was nice. I wish we had done that earlier. You know, sometimes when you grow up with somebody like that, and, and my mom was a poet, a published poet, and, you know, while we're kids, we sort of take the the what's special about that is we take that for granted Um, the specialness of having a parent that's doing something like that and uh, you take it for granted and I always just thought everybody's dad probably plays guitar and sings you know and so I was certainly influenced but I wasn't really overly impressed at the time Um, and same with uh, my mom's poetry even more so my mom's poetry I was into my dad's guitar playing I thought that was cool but I didn't appreciate my mom's poetry until well, much later.
1: So you and Chris play different instruments. You know, you're okay. the Wood Brothers, but you play yeah. guitar, and, and and he plays stand-up bass. As a kid, did you feel like you needed to have different instruments, or did you both just gravitate uh, to the instruments that you played? Uh,
2: those were things we gravitated towards. Um, I think when I really decided I want to play, wanted to play music, as a teenager I got a bass actually this that's how the story goes I got a bass I thought ah that can't be too hard to learn I'll get a bass and so I I stuck with that for just a very short time just a few months and then I I decided I wanted to switch guitar to a guitar so I gave my brother the bass and he really my brother is a very focused and and uh hard-working uh obsessive individual so he disappeared with that bass for a few months and got really good really fast um and just kept his passion all along for the for that instrument whereas i play guitar um yeah so i don't think we ever wanted to play the same thing i think and um and i I get yeah for whatever reason we gravitated towards those things
1: were you actually in a band in high school
2: we actually um played it together at home as teenagers once we were both proficient and we got a four track uh, recorder and um, you know started recording things together and and learning things together and I was a little older so I was able to teach him some basic things that I knew Um, but after a while yeah we were just sort of both on our way to you know by the time we left the house we we were proficient enough and I wasn't positive that's what I was going to do but I think he left the house. He already knew that's what he was going to do.
1: Were you ever attracted to sports? I mean, you are in Colorado, skiing and <laughs> all those oh, yeah. kinds of fun things.
2: So, yeah, I was a, I was a tennis player. <laughs> that was my thing. Yeah, because my dad was also really good at tennis. So that was another thing. That was sort of a hobby that I really loved. And I even as a teenager thought, and I did well competitively, but, but not like the top of the heap or anything like that. So I was... I had fantasies of doing that somehow for a living at one point, but I think I just had to get out in the real world and see like, Oh, that's a whole nother. I I, I think music ended up being more attractive. somehow.
1: Actually, tennis is what I played as well. I still love it. And I, and I love, I love watching tennis. (laughs) I like the whole thing about tennis.
2: Yeah. I was joked that, you know, I was also really into like blues guitar playing (laughs) and I was, I was joked at uh, how, Tennis and the blues uh, go hand in hand.
1: Okay? <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. I, I I lost more than I won, probably when I was playing, but um, but I had a ton of fun with it. And uh, there was always those there was always that game where you were ahead and you were winning and you lose. That's always fun. <laughs> yeah,
2: the agony of defeat.
1: The agony of defeat, right. Um, so so at some point you move from Boulder to Atlanta, right? Or was there some place in between?
2: Uh, Well, I did go to college for uh, a few years uh, back in California. So didn't finish there, but um, but had some adventures, grew up a little bit, got very passionate about music, and realized that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, And in school, uh, when I was in California, I met some buddies who were also into music and we all moved I think one of the fellows was one from Atlanta so we followed him back there I'd never been to Atlanta I'd never really been to the to the south at all and uh, and I ended up there and you know that band didn't last too long but I ended up really getting deeply into uh, the local music scene in Atlanta especially roots music there's like the clubs that had blues and and sort of roots rock and roll and stuff like that. I was really into that scene. and uh, Eventually went back to college and finished college to make my mom happy uh, at Georgia State University, which is sort of a commuter school in Atlanta.
1: So what, <laughs> what was your experience like in California that sort of t- tipped you over the edge that you wanted to become a professional musician rather than whatever else, tennis or anything?
2: I don't know. I think it's just sort of weeding things out and start you know a lot of times things like that depend on the crowd you choose to hang out with and um i just found other people that were really passionate about it and bonded over that and realized that that's you know sometimes i I think you just it's sort of less conscious conscious than it is just passion like you find yourself spending all all day working on guitar playing uh, that's probably Good way to go then.
1: Were you already writing music at that point?
2: I was not really, no. And, and I wasn't singing either. I was more an instrumentalist and just loved that part of it. I, I liked the idea of singing, but never had the confidence really to do that um, early on. So it took um, other mentors and, and older musicians to encourage me and um, inspire me to, to do my own singing and writing so in in atlanta i i um i started out my first got my first road gig with um, a fellow named tinsley ellis who is a great blues guitar player has been doing it a long time and he took me on tour for a couple of years and showed me the ropes and started um encouraging me he he said i could sing one song a night and he would uh back me up and and uh, so that was a amazing thing for him to do and Something I was horrified at first, but I <laughs> got more comfortable with it, and, and then eventually he sort of inspired me to want to start start my own band. So, so my friend Chris Long and I started a band called King Johnson when we were in Atlanta, and that's what I would be doing for the next uh, ten or fifteen years. um was playing with King Johnson, and Chris Long was a, was older than me, a bass player great singer and songwriter as well and he's the one who really inspired me to start writing my own songs and was another person who really encouraged me to to start singing as well Um, which is it's hard to just declare yourself a singer if you haven't been doing it all along so i was in my uh, mid-20s before i even tried singing in front of people and um, so it took a while to get confident and to get uh, where i could hold pitches and uh, but I was real lucky. I feel like the, the mentors that I got to play with uh, were really selfless and and, uh, and helpful and supportive, so that, that helped a lot. And inspiring, too.
1: Who were some of the other folks that sort of influenced you or, or inspired you during that time?
2: Well, you know, there's always people who, who are sort of iconic, uh, famous people that we listen to. And, and emulate and um, that are sort of obvious influences. But I think the less obvious and, and maybe more profound influences are the people that you play with and that you hang around with. So, so Tinsley Ellis was one, uh, Chris Long, and all of my close friends in King Johnson had a huge influence on, uh, on me as a player and, and helped shape my tastes and, and um, inspire me um uh there was a fella in atlanta named donnie mccormick who uh who was um, a drummer and um a a regionally well-known musician uh down there and he in his later years he he just sang he was a singer and he played the chicken coop as a percussion instrument (laughs) which sounds weird if you're not familiar with him but he, he used to be a drummer as he got older, he was tired of carrying the drums around. He just started beating on this little chicken cage, which is basically a plywood and, and wooden slats and looks like a lobster trap or something like that. He had a profound um, influence, I think, on a lot of us musicians who were in that scene in Atlanta because not only was it unconventional what he was doing, but he was somebody who lived for performing and making music and you could just tell uh he could be in his older years he was his health was really poor and he looked really rough and he you could tell he was pretty uncomfortable but when he got on stage he just went to this place where you could tell he was it's like he was in a trance or something and you don't see a lot of musicians like that um somebody who is so in that moment that um I don't know. You get the feeling that's they're they're the perfect artist somehow, and that's how I envisioned him and how he influenced me. And I've written songs about him, and I've I think about him all the time. So, so uh, that was a big one. Um, and then you know, after King Johnson, well, I uh, started the band with my brother, and my brother is a huge. My brother Chris is a huge influence on me. I think I've always I've learned a lot from. Uh, reuniting with him just as we learned together when we were kids you know we were apart for several years and while he was in a band called modusky martin wood which is up in the northeast um which was more of a jazz and improvisational um band with no singing just uh, incredible musicians i was in the south um playing uh blues gigs and rb gigs and then starting this band with king johnson uh, but when we got together, I think we had a lot to teach each other. We we had gone different paths and learned different things and came from different schools at that point. Um, so it was fun to bring it back together.
1: So before I get to when you guys actually uh, kind of reunited us, I, I should say, musically, um, yeah. what was the Atlanta scene like when you were playing there? Was it a cool music scene and, and was there a lot Yeah, I
2: mean, honestly, I didn't have much to compare it to. Um, I was just deep in it. So for me, it was fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, when you're in a city and I find this here in Nashville or, or, any city, I think there are, there's more than one music scene, you know, they, they're, um, in fact, it's a little bit sad how, how you wish they would be a little more integrated. Um, so you know atlanta has an amazing hip-hop scene um which i was not part of one bit but wouldn't that have been cool to be a little if that scene had crossed over with uh, which it did in certain cases um, but that was not my scene i i, um, I listened to that music though um, but i was in a scene that was more about uh roots music so which which could you know, sometimes they call Americana these days, or I just, I like the idea of just like, you know, blues, gospel, country, jazz, all those things that are sort of known as American uh, standard foundations of music. Uh, just mixing those things together and and coming up with new recipes. Uh, that, that was the scene that I was in and what, what I was really interested in. So for me, it was great because I had a lot of people who were had been doing it a while who who were the mentors and then there was a lot of uh there were some younger people below me that uh, in age that were also really in- inspiring and um uh so to me it was fantastic but uh you know i didn't i didn't have anything else to you know, i had this one path that i was on <laughs> so i wasn't um it's not until later in life that you get to go to that i've been able to go to other cities and sort of. A little bit experience their music scene, but there's nothing like living in a place and then finding your niche. You know.
1: Well said. When did you and your brother then figure out that hey, we should be playing professionally together? Uh, was there a moment or?
2: Yeah, there was. A, there was a couple of moments. Um, we were, uh, you know, I like I said, I played in King Johnson for oh, good. 10 or 12 years while he was playing with Modesky martin and wood we were living in different parts of the country we had we were in different music scenes we were um we had grown apart quite a bit uh, just from distance and and uh, being disconnected so um we had a really great show at one point where my band opened for his band um in north carolina and um We had never done that before, and we had such a good time because just not only reuniting, but connecting, reconnecting with music, and I got to play with his band that night, and they asked me to play a few tunes, and my brother and I stood next to each other and just had a lot of fun and this epiphany that, wow, we've got this thing in common. We've gotten really good at it, and we have this language now that we can talk and uh, that we can speak, and we can also uh it it's almost like a psychic connection we realize that because we are brothers we have certain esp kind of moments playing music together that usually take years to develop with a bandmate, and we just had that right off the bat after after 12 years of being apart and uh, so i think we got excited about that so we made it a point um in the next in the years that followed to to Get together and play music when we were visiting our family at home or on a holidays or whatever, um, and that's where we gradually started making new music together and starting the Wood Brothers.
1: So was it a natural progression to the the sound that is the Wood Brothers, or was there a, was it something that was deliberate, or did you just play enough together that you said this is kind of where this is going?
2: I think it was that I think we just sort of discovered the sound because we, we knew that what we had spent the last 10 or 15 years experiencing and learning on our own would would come together and be something special. We just could tell it was going to be cool. We didn't know what it would be exactly. Um, and it started out. I just sent Chris a whole bunch of songs and said, see what you you know, what would you do on these songs? Um and he, he learned them and we got together and played them and it was just like wow we could just this is so easy and, and effortless and then we started writing songs together and uh yeah so i, I don't think it was a conscious um, sound we were trying to come up with it was more uh just something that happened organically and something that we could just discover and, and, and follow and see where it would take us you know
1: so you put out your first album, and was, was Chris already living in Nashville? or No, no, no. He was okay. still
2: in, at that point, he was in upstate New York, and I was in Atlanta still. And um, we put our first record out in 2006. So we, we wouldn't live in the same city until 2013 or 14. So either we would go on a tour, or we would just spend, he would come to, to Atlanta for a week, or I would do, this, do the same thing in New York, and we would write and, and practice and record. And, um, yeah, so we had to commute. No, yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a challenge, but, um, but it was great. It made us, uh, really folk. And, you know, we were still do it playing with our other bands at the early days. So he was still doing shows with Modeski Martin and Wood. Um, so it started out just as sort of a part-time side project. Um, if you will. And then the more we did it, the more passionate we got about it and, and uh, just grew over the years.
1: So let's sort of fast forward then. Let's talk about Always Smiling, the very cool album that you just put out, Solo Album. Tell me how this project evolved.
2: You know, there comes a time where you just feel like, wow, you know, when am I going to collaborate with other people? You know, just for fun, because collaborating is, is connecting. It's, it's um it's camaraderie and which we have plenty of in the wood brothers and it's awesome. Um, but normally I would hard, I would just wouldn't have time for that. So I, I never thought, well, I'm going to do a solo record someday or anything like that. But I did have the urge to just write music with other people and, and, and play with other people too. Um, so yeah, occasionally I would have, when people came through Nashville in my, my breaks from touring, I would, um, write and sometimes record with with friends people like phil cook or carcy blanton um and so i had a little bit of uh of material that i was starting to work on without any goal other than just to do it for because it felt good and and to collaborate with my buddies and um so then the pandemic hit, and we were all stuck, and we couldn't tour anymore. And you know, with the Wood Brothers, it's a very full time work. Like, I'd, we're on tour for 130 days a year, and when we're not on tour, I mean, I gotta have some family time. I got kids, and uh, so I, it was hard to find time to do anything but the Wood Brothers. Which, uh, and uh, no complaints, because it's been a great 15 years. Um, but without the touring and everything being on hold and everyone in quarantine, I found myself um, still inspired to write and with a lot of free time on my hands. And, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of others like me who took advantage of that time as well. But with that free time, I was able to, we, we have the Wood Brothers, we have a studio. So I have access to a studio and I just took advantage of it and just wrote songs and finished up old so- the songs that I had been working on with other people and, had no intention of making an album until one day I had enough songs to, I almost had enough. And I was like, why not just do that? To have a goal or to have a finish line would be nice. I've never done that before.
1: Well, you know, we were at AMA a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, and mm-hmm. my husband visited your studio. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. He said it was very, very cool. cool. I wish I had been able yeah. to go with him at the time, but um, is that where most of this was recorded?
2: Yes, Yep, it, it's recorded entirely there. Now, you know some of the rules of the pandemic, uh, and just um, geography, I made me record some of it elsewhere. Like for instance, I sent some stuff. I sent a song to Susan Tedeschi who, and, um, and asked her to sing us sing on it. So she did that remotely, and John Tedeschi played. Uh, uh, organ on a song remotely so there was some of the recording was done like that but most of it was right there in the studio with um, safety protocol in place and people coming in and out um in small numbers usually just one or two people working at once masks and everything so well always remember that i have a lot of fun footage and photos and memories of the pandemic sessions you know what it fe- felt like to to have that as your it's uh, what grounded me every day you know
1: did you write the songs and then they jammed around the songs you had already written or uh, what was, how did they form? How did the songs form?
2: Well, uh, they're all a little different, but I think what you're, well, what, what happened is some, uh, to some of the songs and some of my favorite songs really were originally just jams or improvisations. Um, and this is something that we, discovered in that studio with the making of the last Wood Brothers album is how much we liked uh, and appreciated that we could just play. When you have your own studio, you're not watching the clock, you're, 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 uh, it's like a playhouse. It's like you can just, it's a clubhouse. You can just make noises for fun and not worry about, is this on a record? Is this a song? What is it? You can just approach it like a kid and play. And what's different about it is everything can be recorded professionally to album quality while you're doing that. And so um, what we discovered in there is that you play differently when, it, when when there's nothing at stake like that. You just play without thought, and your subconscious um, lets things out that otherwise would be uh, – would otherwise be – be pushed back down by your logical thinking of okay this is a song here's the parts and um, so we found that capturing those moments of spontaneity and conversations between music uh, musicians with their instruments is something special and so that so to answer your question some of the songs and i can tell you which ones um are jam sessions like that that were just recorded for posterity. But then later, I went back and I wrote lyrics and melodies on top of them and and added singing later, and maybe did some editing so that it would logically make sense. Um, but what excites me about that is having captured the, the original spontaneous ideas that, that just happened to be songs later. You know.
1: Do you think that Playing something live like that in a studio captures a certain energy level that you can't do when you're tracking songs.
2: Absolutely absolutely. Yeah. It just captures a moment that can't be recreated, you know. Just like a magic photograph or something where just something unexpected happens and you've got it. And if you tried to do it again, it wouldn't be the same, it wouldn't work, you know.
1: So let's talk about some of the songs on the album. So let's talk about kindness, because I read that that there was uh, a reference to the Dalai Lama uh, in the song. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, well, the song kindness is uh, that song came about that way. I had some friends recording in the studio with me and we just jammed for most of the day and recorded it. And that was the uh, that was one of the songs that came out. Uh, later so later on i looked at that jam when i started thinking about the song kindness um and you know not only did we have the pandemic this last year but we had a lot of social um stuff in the news and a lot of uh you know scary but liberating stuff um and it put some things on the radar right front and center where they where they needed to be and so I think this this song, Kindness, was somewhat um, inspired by that. And, and yeah, uh, there's a, a line, kindness is my religion. Um, that's kind of the, the chorus, uh, which is something that I read. The Dalai Lama said kindness is, is my religion. So um, so I, I guess I thought of it as a uh, humble sort of dignified uh, character that we could all aspire to be, maybe that's sort of what that one's,
1: you know, I, I had the privilege of meeting the Dalai Lama once earlier oh, wow. in my life. And it was a um, long story as to why I got to meet the Dalai Lama. But he was in washington, d c, and I happened to be there at the time, and I knew someone who was involved in human rights. and And uh, there was this luncheon. And we all sat down. Of course, he's he's vegetarian. And they had a vegetarian dish, and they had some meat dishes. And you can imagine, but someone served him the meat dish and not the vegetarian dish. And then there's this horrified look on someone's face as they realize what they've done out out of all the things they could do wrong, you know, right? So they're running up there and they're swapping them out. And uh, he then gets up to talk. And uh, just what you would think of the Dalai Lama, he says, I just want to say that uh, whoever served me the meat dish, I do love meat. I just can't eat it. And I would hope that this person would not be punished because it didn't put me out at all. And uh, I just appreciate being here and all these people running around doing all these wonderful things to me. And I would hope that you would be kind to him. So Good. it was it was one of those moments when, you know, he didn't have to say anything, but he did. Sure. And and so yeah. it, it struck me uh when I was uh, listening to kindness and you had mentioned that reference, it sort of reminded me of that story, and uh, yeah. and how genuinely kind he is as as a, as a person. And to bring yeah, this yeah. to bring this full circle, the chicken coop was on this song, right?
2: It was, yeah. And you know, the chicken coop, like I like I said earlier, was something inherited from. Donnie McCormick, not that specific one, but the idea of using that as a as a music making thing. Um, and that's something that I gave to Jono, the drummer, who played um, on the album as well. But to have a chicken coop in the studio and to be able to record with it is, for me, as a way of keeping Donnie in, in the music and in my art, you know, just having it, it's a tradition almost.
1: I love that. And molasses, it was about the great molasses flood. Is that correct?
2: That's the uh, uh, inspiration for that one. And that's something I I wrote with Carsey Blanton, the great songwriter from Philadelphia. Um, yeah. And she had this idea of, you know, about the molasses flood and, uh, and she had this first line. She dropped, she drowned in molasses. Wow. That's cool. And so, uh, Uh, Which, for people who don't know about the Great Molasses Flood, it's an actual historic event that happened, I think, in in New England um, at the beginning, early 1900s, where a molasses factory had some sort of explosion or malfunction, and just millions of gallons of molasses uh, flowed down a street and actually killed some people. So it was a, a, a tragic thing, but also a really weird and unique story so anyway that was the inspiration to get that song started and then and then there was some, some real life uh, things in my life that I either heard about through my family lore or uh, or witnessed that sort of made up the rest of the song
1: yeah I read uh, one line they made it to heaven before their last breath
2: yeah so that ends up being the yeah the, uh, sort of the theme of the song is is people who died uh, in a very happy place, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure that probably didn't happen to the woman who, who drowned in molasses, but I'm trying to, I tried to imagine her uh, going out with a smile on her face because she has that delicious taste in her mouth.
1: That's well, a really fun song. It's a great yeah. album and I really had fun listening to it and I loved the story behind the album and um what's next for you are you back in the studio soon you said you were touring
2: well i i mean what it looks like is that uh the whole touring industry is trying to get cranked up again um so and everyone's really optimistic um we we have a pretty full summer of outdoor shows which seems reasonable um some of them still have proto uh, covid protocols, so they're Distance outside things, but uh, once the fall comes, we have a lot of indoor theaters and things like that with the Wood Brothers that um, that sound like they're going to be normal. So <laughs> I, I just hope it all, hope it works.
1: As do but, I. Yeah,
2: that's the main thing. That's the main thing is that back to touring, trying to get an income again, and um, get you know most importantly, get reconnected with all the people out there that need music, including us.
1: Well, Oliver, it was so great to to have you here today and wish you the Thank best you. of luck with the album and you know, come see us in Memphis anytime. And- We'll uh, do,
2: we'll do. My, my son is uh, at the University of Memphis so i get there every once in a
1: while. Ah, well come on by the studio. We'd love to love to see you, but best of luck okay. and um, we'll talk to you very soon.
2: You got it. Thanks so much.
1: We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Oliver Wood. Be sure to check out the new full length studio album from Wood titled Always Smiling." on Honey Jar Records and 30 Tigers. You can visit OliverWoodMusic.com to learn more. And as always, don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content and to download the official DiddyTV app from your app store today.
0: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.